We're in John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Last week we ended up chapter 1, which was a flurry of activity. Uh, the calling of six disciples, Andrew, Peter, uh, John and James, and Philip and Nathaniel. And they were all called from a fishing town, a little fishing town, Bethsaida. Got fishermen to make them fishers of men, and so it seems like that would be their core group. I thought I'd bring in my tackle box to show you what uh, we got in here. We got all kinds of, you know, we have different tackle for different people. You know, you might have to use a, you know, a coin or something shiny and bright to get their attention. Hey, hey, hey. You know, and be able to try to give them the gospel in that way. Uh, we, we've got um, some of these gospel uh, pens that teach the Ten Commandments that unrolls. And you have the Ten Commandments on there, you can keep it armed ready. Like, hey, have you ever seen one of these? And you're able to spin it. You know, we've got the uh, different optical illusion tracks that we have. I've got some E-bands. I'm going to have this on the table on the way back. You want to get one. This one's by the Evangicube people. And so it's like when the armband's kind of the gospel color, but kind of taken up a notch. And so there's a little card that explains that that's out there. I've got some of their movie cards. Like if someone's just curious about it, they can go online and watch uh, the Ray Comfort Living Waters movies for free. Here's a smart card with a little test. You'll put your thumb on it and see if you're a good person. (laughs) Nobody is. (laughs) There's a few others. There's some geared towards kids. I do have an Evangel Cube. I have two, but I have one in use at work right now trying to lure a fish in. There's one here. If you don't have one, I know we passed some out for Christmas a few years ago. We have that in there. And then we have a flat version that they have now. It's a little easier to carry in your pocket than a giant magic cube. But it's the same thing, the same points that you could walk through uh, with somebody in that way. Here's a good one. It's fun to watch when you throw it out. It looks like a wallet laying there in money. You get them, watch them open it up. And, <laughs> it's a gospel track. You know, and so <laughs> that was, it's kind of a different version of just the money track. And there's one that I got a guy at work on the other day. I asked him if he could make change for a large bill. And he, his back was to me. He turned around. And he goes, yeah, uh, yeah, how large? I go, this large. You know, and so, <laughs> but, so that was a good one <laughs> to have. And it's got a real interesting gospel presentation on the back that talks about how many faces can you find on the front of this bill. And then it uses the song American Pie to give the gospel. So uh, drove the Chevy to the levee and it was dry, if you didn't know. Uh, so we have that. You know, we've got all kinds in here in the bottom. I like this one because it's the evolution progress chart where they're all walking with the last guys turn around saying, quit following me, we're not related. You know, and so, so that, that's a good one on there. There's some, some brain power, uh, faiths for weak people. We've got the good person test we've had before, the one with a bunch of jokes. I think it's upside down. He's actually upside down. I had another new one. Oh, I got a new one for dog people. So if you see someone out walking, here's a dog trivia track that you could give them that goes on and presents the gospel to them. So I got a new stack of those. I even got some old school ones that I made. That's Are We Alone that uses the UFOs to talk about and, and Crossroads, an old Crossroad track I made years ago. All kinds of different ways. And so that's a good tackle box. Different way to uh, approach different people. And so I'll have that uh, on the table on the way out along with all of our other tracks. Uh, and I just try to get some different ones and try to get some out there. Maybe there's something that will work for you that you like better than I do. And you don't always have to carry it in a big tackle box. But <laughs> the, the, uh, just to try to encourage us that we are to be fishers of men. You figure if you're, you're out fishing, you know, I think probably every fisherman's had this thought. You know, you, you get the nibble, you finally work on them, you, you finally catch them, land them, they, they stay on. You get it all the way and you get it out and you're like looking at that fish and he's thinking, where am I? You know, because his face is all like shock and he's gulping. He's like, he knows the world of water. We've just pulled him into a whole big, brighter, fantastic world that's so much bigger than his dark and dreary uh, lake that he was in or pond. That's what we're doing too, right? We're trying to catch men and pull them off this dark, dreary world and pull them into a, a new world, a new heaven. And so we just have the hook of the gospel in there, and you might use some shiny bait to get them interested, but then to try to, to pull them from death to life. And so uh, to be fishers of men. 
And so chapter 1 ends that way. We see the call of these six disciples, and that makes us ready for chapter 2. And chapter 2 is written by the same guy who wrote chapter 1. It's shocking. It's a whole book <laughs> written by John. I call him John the Revelator. That's uh, to distinguish him from John the Baptist. But in doing that, it's probably the most famous book uh, we think of, Revelation, uh, that John wrote. And it's the same author, and he uses the same style, though it's kind of hidden from us. Revelation has over 800 and some references to the Old Testament. I don't even know if we've got them all. I know I haven't found all 800, but there, there's allusions, there's direct quotes, you know, there's things and patterns that happen. We're like, oh, that's like the Old Testament. Oh, that's like uh, the law there you know, that lays those things out. One of the things you notice in the book of Revelation, a lot of numbers, a lot of number seven. And we started out talking about the Gospel of John saying there's sevens in here. There's, uh, there's at least seven sets of seven uh, that are in uh, the Gospel of John, if not maybe more. You'll see some people list five, you know, some people seven. It's like probably, again, who knows how many sets of sevens there are. There are signs that are in there. There are things that are coded to trigger thoughts and to pull it all in. And we kind of lose it because um, we don't read John the same way as we read Revelation. We kind of go into it thinking, this is kind of a weird book, you know. And so we read it that way, that there's, but knowing that there's something more, you know, knowing that there's something there when you're reading Revelation. There's the same thing in the Gospel of John, same author, same stuff. He's using the same things. He's using numbers. He's using codes. He's using references and signs. He has them in here as well to stir us into the rest of the Bible, to show that Christ is the fulfillment of those things that are written in the Old Testament. We kind of lose it, I think, because it's more narrative. You know, it's more as a story progressing as it goes along. But he tells us at the end, and we cheated, and we read the end first, right? That he says, there's so much more I could have put. So, so John has picked out specific things for a specific reason, which then has made me kind of turn up my uh, sensitivity on my dial here to say, why? You know, why this? And why here? And why does he include that? Because for what John is known for, he's also known for what he's omitted, and sometimes there's whole lessons in that. What does he not tell us that the other Gospels do? You know, so it's, it's a very complex book. It's not just one you read. It's one we give to early Christians, that's for sure. But it's one that we can come back and study on. And I have to say, I am so grateful that we are in it right here and right now in the time and place in which we are in, in the world. And so that's your clue for chapter 2. But there's more here than what you think. How's that? And so uh, let's read this very familiar account of the marriage of Cana. And Cana was a little village that's northwest of Nazareth, and we know that that's where Jesus grew up. And so it's in Galilee, and it's about five miles away. And so uh, just a pretty short trip by car, walking, a little different story. You know? <laughs> but, uh, uh, so chapter 2, let's read verses 1 through 11. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine... The mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus said unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. And the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was. But the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and said unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. 
but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifest forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Okay. Did you catch them all? <laughs> kept all the codes and clues, but there's plenty in there. So water to wine, we've heard this, right? You usually hear it at a marriage, you know, it's like... They talk about this being set apart, how Jesus honors this marriage. But, uh, so we've heard it. Let's ask some of those questions. Why is this the first thing that he mentions? Why, why is this? He's called the disciple. We're starting the ministry of Jesus. Why, why did he pick this one to be first? Because we know John's being selective. Why this one? Why is it included in the many things that he could have left out? But John picks this one. And does it relate to us? You know, is it just something happened there and then, and we believe it, and we go forward? Was there something here that's an allusion to you and I? And so uh, we'll pull out, and I think it's at least two or three things there we can look for. So first one, let's read it. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Anything jump out to you in that one? Anything we've seen before, a pattern in Scripture? Yep, a few of you got it. Yep, number three, right? Third day. It's not the band. But the band takes the name after this because it's a thing through Scripture. A few uh, Resurrection Sundays back, a few years ago, I went through them and we just looked at all the third days uh, in the Bible. And so uh, John is setting a pattern. He's saying, hey, before we even start, third day, be looking for that. Wink, wink. It's just that good. I think it's, he kind of tells us here why a third day. If you get to verse 11, it says, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana and manifested forth his glory. This manifested his glory. On the third day, he manifested his glory. You know what? On the third day after he was crucified, he manifested his glory. And so we already kind of have that type. Hey, here's where you start out. Here's where you're going to end. Look for that clue. Don't miss it. I like that. I like that he does that. I like that he's given us this clue and that he's tied it all together. But wait, there's more. So we know that three days of resurrection, he shows his glory. And people didn't argue about What's the third day from? And the third day, there was a marriage at Cana. Is it the third day after John the Baptist baptized him? If so, they're huffing pretty good. He calls six disciples, and he has to get five miles out to this town to make it to the marriage feast. Maybe. Is it, say, third day just after calling the disciples? Give them a little more time. You know, so he does that, calls the disciples, and then three days after he called them, they go up there. Or is there something else? I think there's something else. And we miss it because we're not Jewish. Trying my best to be an adopted Jew. I'm trying my best to be grafted into the vine, but there's just so much culture that we don't get. I heard a report once, a lady who was from Europe somewhere, and she said she thought she could come to America and be an American because she'd watch all sitcoms. She goes, I think I could go to school, and I would be the most popular girl, and I would know what to do, and I would know what to say. And we're like, that's good, that's television. <laughs> and there's another thing to come here and live and to pull off being iCarly or whoever you're going to be, whatever generation she was from. I think it was around that age, she said. But it's different. You know, so it's one thing to like read all these things and try to imagine, what would I be like? Could I fake it when I was there? <laughs> I miss church. It was on the Sabbath, which was Saturday, not Sunday. I'm used to our habit. You know, so there's a lot of things that are weird. So hold your spot here and let's look at Genesis 1. We'll take a trip through the Bible to... No, we're just going to stay in Genesis 1. I've not studied under any other rabbi than Jesus, you know, and uh, the disciples. And so just trying to appreciate what rabbis think and how rabbis think. This gives a little insight into that. So in Genesis 1 here... Very familiar. Looks like it's where we all start. Look at verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was out form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and he divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and in the evening and the morning there was the first day. So this is 
Sunday, Sunday, and he says it's good, and he makes the light and the darkness. Verses 6 through 8. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it be divided from the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters from which under the firmament from the waters uh, that were from above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. Miss anything there. He didn't say it was good. We normally kind of get through, we read all this, and we're like, oh yeah, and he says it's good on each day, you know. But the Holy Spirit does things on purpose. He includes things in there when it is and when it's not. Is it not good because it's Monday? We'd all say amen. But uh, I don't think that's why. He doesn't say it's not good. He just doesn't give that blessing yet. So verse 9. And God said, let there be water under heaven and gather together unto one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and the herb yielding seed and after its kind and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. So on Tuesday, he says it's good at least twice. I'd say it's not that Monday's not good. It's just that Tuesday in the Jewish mindset is bigger. It gets a double blessing. He's included two days in that blessing. He has uh, made the proclamation. He's counting everything that he did Monday because he's not done yet, right? He starts on Sunday, and then on Monday he makes everything that he makes that day, and then he makes everything on Tuesday. He's taken those two days now, and he's blessed them and said that they are good. That's how they see it. They saw, Jewish people saw Tuesday as the day of the double blessing. That it was the day where God and the creation, when he set out the pattern for the week, that Tuesday I said it was good, and it included two days' worth of blessing. That tells you about their mindset. This is the thinking that they are doing. So, two days' worth of good for God. If you wanted to get married, and you wanted to have God's blessing on your life and on your marriage, it would be better if you had a double blessing on your marriage and on your life. And so the Jewish day of marriage was not Friday night or Saturday or Sunday afternoon. It was Tuesday. They got married on Tuesday because they wanted to have God's double blessing on their marriage. That makes sense, right? You're thinking, well, that's kind of a silly tradition. No, I think a silly tradition is we get married at 630 because we want to start our marriage on the upswing. That's a little silly, and that's the American tradition, right? You know, that we have like everything, we always get married on the half hour because the big hand's coming around. People with digital clocks don't understand. Uh, but the big hand's coming around, and you're starting your marriage on the upswing. You know, that things are going up, not that things are going down. And that's the tradition in America. Theirs is better. We want to get married on Tuesday because we want to have the double blessing on our marriage. That makes sense. And so that's what John tells us. He just doesn't say Tuesday. He says third day. You know, he could have said Tuesday or whatever day they called Tuesday back then. Uh, I doubt they called it Tuesday. That's a Roman thing. But John could have said that. But I think he's wanting to say, you're about to get a double blessing. And I want you to be uh, all geared up and understanding that the third day, you think that's incredible. You think that's a double blessing. Wait to the third day when Jesus Christ rises again. So I think he's already layering in his codes. You know, he's bringing out specific things saying, you could have just said it was a married. He tells us the day. He tells us it in a coded way so that we'll understand about the resurrection and so that we understand about this double blessing if you're Jewish. And so I find that very interesting. And he says that the mother of Jesus was there. So we're back in John chapter 2, verse 1. One thing we notice throughout the Gospel of John is that he never calls Mary, Mary. He never uses her name. He'll always use something different. He'll always say the mother of Jesus or the mother of our Lord or something like that. And we think 
It's probably because of the cross, right? When he's at the cross, we remember when Jesus was being crucified. John's one of the disciples that didn't run. I mean, he might have ran at first, but he comes back and he's with Mary and the other Marys. As he's there, we know that Christ talks to him from the cross and tells him to take care of Mary after his departure, right? Mother, behold thy son, son, behold thy mother. Maybe there's that kind of respect here that John's like, she's the mother of Christ, but she's more even to me. But I have a mom, so I don't call her mother, but I don't feel right calling her Mary. When Elaine and I were d- dating and got married eventually, surprise, uh, we got married, uh, <laughs> I didn't know what to call my in-laws. You know, it's like, what do I call them? You know, they're not my mom and dad. You know, it's like, it's not like I'm not going to say, hey, dad. And I know some people do. I didn't feel right doing that. I have my parents, and so I didn't call them that. And I didn't feel quite right calling them Gary or Betty. You know, that seemed a little too personal that way. So you know what I did? I didn't call them anything until we had grandkids. And then I called them grandma and grandpa. You're like, <laughs> so, well played. I would just be like, hey, your mom called. You know, or... Uh, I'm going to help your dad. You know, so I was able to always use some other passive way, you know, kind of like when you do when you meet somebody, like, hey, I know who you are, I don't know your name, and you just do everything but know their name. Yeah, and so I did that just until we had grandkids. And I think John's kind of doing that same thing. I don't know what, really, I should say. And so I'm just going to call who you are, the mother of Jesus. And I think it's just that kind of, of respect. Because we know that John feels very, very humble by all this. Who am I? That I would get to be one of the disciples? That I would be the last one alive? That I'd be the one in charge of caring for his mother? You can kind of see how that would all add up to him. And he's just like, the mother of our Lord, the mother of Jesus was there. So verse 2. And both Jesus was called and the disciples to the marriage. I think this is telling. Not that it's, he takes a crowd with him right now, you know, so that's a party of seven, at least, you know, and let alone if who else might have been with them. Say the world. The world's going to have a party. We're inviting a fun thing. Uh, do you invite the cosmic killjoy? Hey, can you come in and tell us how we're all horrible and dying going to hell? Hey, will you tell us you know, how righteous you are and then show us how unrighteous we are? Would you mind coming to that party? No, you don't invite somebody like that. So I think this tells us a little bit about who Jesus is. That he was not the cosmic killjoy. And so he's there. Other thing that we find through scripture is that wine has some symbolism. You know, we know that this is a miracle about wine. It's seen as joy by the rabbis. The rabbis related wine and joy together. When wine is, it's a time of feasting. It's a time of celebration. It's a time you have wine at the marriage. And so wine and joy were the saying. And Jesus is going to be the one who ultimately provides the best joy at this wedding, right? He's the one who's going to bring that. So why wouldn't you invite him? Any marriage that Jesus is invited to, he brings joy to it. That's why we recommend having a biblical marriage. Invite Jesus in between the two of you. You know, we have the whole Ecclesiastes. We're not just two walking along. We have a three-braided cord. You know, it's a, the husband and the wife and Jesus that is in this marriage, binding it all together, making it strong. And so we already have that pattern. That's why this passage is preached at weddings. You know, Jesus is involved. Jesus is mixed. He's the one who brings joy. He's the one who brings it tied together. He's the one that will help you through all these things. We're not alone. And so I think we have that. We already have this kind of mindset, I think, that Jesus is joy. He brings joy. He's a happy guy. Good thing they invited him there, or it would have been a very, very different story. Now, verse 3. And they wanted wine, and the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. Now, this is a major faux pas, and it means more. Because we live in a day and age where there's not so much stigma with stuff. You know, there's people who are proud about their shortcomings and make a whole living off of it. <laughs> stuff that I would say shame and family name and respect and reputation when I was younger, meant so much more than it means now. 
I can remember that was part of the family. You, know, you, you represent us. We represent what you're doing. That is a shameful thing, you know, and that is a shame for you to do that. And that's when, you know, help me quit wetting the bed. And help me quit <laughs> sucking my thumb. And all this, it's like, you shouldn't be doing these things. You know, it's like, it's like oh, I don't want to be applied on society. I want to comply. I, I want to do these things. You know, so it helped move us to get it in. Jewish culture was even more so, you know, turned up to an 11, you know, on this. And so uh, if they had a marriage feast without wine, without joy as the symbolism, they would be remembered their whole life as this. They'd be like, oh, somebody's like, where are you going this weekend? I'm going over to Ravi and Dorcas's house. Oh, yeah? Better take your own wine. <laughs> you know, they run out all the time. It's BYOW there. They would be seen as this forever. Like, oh, remember, they let us all down. We had to drink water the rest of the feast and uh, some party that was. You know, so they, they would be known as this. And so it's a major plight. They're in, in a pickle. And so then they've gone to Mary, and Mary's, Mary knows about it. She was friends of the family, right? Because she's invited, and Jesus is there, and his entourage. And so, so she comes to him. Look how Jesus responds, verse 4. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now, we read that in today's vernacular a lot. And a lot of commentators would say that this sounds rude. I don't think Jesus was rude. I don't think Jesus was rude to his mother. He's not reading it like, you know, the grumpy old man. Woman, what do you have to do with me? I don't think he was saying it like that. They say that this was in a term of endearment, you know, that he's, one, that he's of age, you know, he's 30, and so he's not under her care. Chances are, uh, we'll see stuff next week, you know, that she travels with him a lot, you know, and so he's the one responsible. He's the one who's in charge. It's like, I'm endeared to you. And I have that respect for you, you know, but it's like, you know, kind of like, ha, ah, you know, I'm not your little boy you know, <laughs> anymore, you know, like to tell me what to do. And a lot of people use it, a lot of religion will use that. You know, oh, if we go to Mary, she can make Jesus do it. It's not like he's some hard-hearted guy who's not going to do anything, right? You know, that's something from pagan religions where you pleat into the mother to make them beg the son to get him to do something. No, we can go right to Christ, you know, so we don't need that. And I think a lot of the things that we have in here, is because the Holy Spirit gets in front of any kind of a heresy that's going to come later, and so she's not to be worshipped. I think we're seeing normal conversation. He's not being rude. He's just using a term of more equal partners here. And then he makes a statement here that he says, Mine hour is not yet come. This is another one of those little clues that John has laid down. He's kind of like, I'm just going to drop this little breadcrumb right here. And see if you notice it, if you walk on by. He's going to say, Mine hour has not yet come six more times, or at least five more times. So a total of six times in the Gospel of John. You know what that makes me think about? I wonder when his hour comes. You know, does he ever tell us when his hour comes? He does. And so John is like, oh, I want you to be ready for that hour when it comes. So here's a little plot device I've left. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. We're getting closer. And so we know that there are six. And then the seventh, his hour has come. So he's already kind of given some of that number stuff that we already know from the Bible. He's laying that down as well. Now we know as we're reading through the rest of the Gospel of John, watch out for the times when he says, my hour has not yet come or my time is not yet, or those things. And then we're looking especially for the one where he says, mine hour is. You know, and so we're going to look for that. John is laying down that. I think it's just a good plot device. I remember... Uh, reading the book Timeline, uh, Michael Crichton, and it had a very good plot device where, you know, there was so much time for the machine was going to come back and there's a grenade and all these different things. I thought, ooh, that's just a good intensity builder as it's going through the story. Uh, the movie loses it. But it's in there kind of building for that. And I'm like, here we have a great author who's laying down this plot device and also just giving us these clues. We're looking for the hour in which Jesus' time has come and build towards that. Now, verse 5. 
His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Mary doesn't say much in Scripture. We have her words recorded a few times, and here we have an early one. But every time she does, she glorifies Jesus. She glorifies Jesus. She lifts him up. And here's my advice to you. Take the advice of Jesus' mother. Whatsoever he says, do it. Can you get any better mother advice than that? Jesus is here. Whatever he says, do it. You know, whatever he is asking of you. If he's giving you some commandment, do it. You know, do these things. And I said, well, I think that would be enough takeaway from this story, just to learn from Mary that whatever he says, do it, and you will be blessed. Verse 6. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. I don't know. I think we should go back to firkins. I think that sounds like a pretty fun <laughs> unit of measurement. How much you want? Root beer you want? Ah, a couple of firkins. You know, <laughs> they're really kind of confused about what it is. I think they said it relates to baths, uh, which is how they would measure by baths. I'm like, that sounds like a lot of root beer then if I had a bath full of root beer. But uh, no, they usually recognize it's about nine gallons of uh, something. I'll get back to that just a little bit more. But there's some more clues in here. Let me read it one more time. Keep your eye open for clues. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Clues. One, he's very specific, isn't he? He could have just said, hey, there were some water pots around, and, uh, and Jesus turned them into water. We'd be like, well, that same story, right? Why the detail? Why, why these little specific things? He didn't say that. He goes, no, there are six water pots made of stone. Because if I'm picturing water pots, you know, from all my Jewish understanding from movies, is that um, they're clay, right? There's some brittle clay, red things sitting on the corner over there, something that somebody made. Man, a stone one. That's uh, not very portable, I would think. You know, but it kind of tells you the size that they are. And so why does he specifically tell us that they're stone? Why does he tell us that they're six? Why does he tell us what they're there for? I guess I would have been confused, like, why they got so many water pots? But I also think they don't have running water. They probably had a lot of water pots around. You know, I get thirsty. Um, but it's not for any of those things. He tells us why they are there. And so he's given us a lot of details here to try to pull out stuff in the story that he, we would miss. He said, I would assume clay pots, but they're not. Uh, John the Baptist, in chapter 1, verse 17, says that the law was given by Moses. That grace and truth are going to come by Jesus Christ. He says, we've had and we have operated under the law, but something better is coming. I think there's some nuance in that. I think that's kind of prepping us for what this is. We have a better purification that is coming. The law says, wash with water. Cleanliness is next to godliness is a biblical phrase in the sense if you boil it all down. You want to be clean. I mean, God gave them all kinds of dietary things to eat that were clean. He gave them all kinds of things, how to wear their clothes and the clothes that the priests were to wear and how they were to wash and the flowing water going down. And this way, how they were to get rid of waste. You take a shovel, you bury it outside. I'm the Lord. I come into your camp. I'm not stepping in that. You know, and so he gives us those kind of things, you know, how to keep sanitary laws, how to do all these things. He sets up all these rules because the cleanliness is next to God. We're clean. I have a clean place. We have a healthy place. They, uh, they had none of these diseases, was a book that Elaine read in a nursing early on that we got together to talk about all the things that the Jews were spared from because they followed the law. It kept them away from the diseases that a lot of places had. A lot of that is in there as well. So these pots were used for washing. And they would dip in it and pour it on their hands. You know, as they come throughout the days, you get your hands dirty. They didn't have a running water. And so they were used for purification. In my mind, I always thought they were like set apart, sitting there 
I guess, air drying like my towel in high school. It's like, yeah, I got it my freshman year. I hung it up. I never washed it till the end. I always just rubbed it on me after I took a shower so it's clean, right? And so it was always there, and I'm thinking it's air purified. I do that with my socks, too. It's like they're being air purified there, and so now they are clean if they've set out for 24 hours. You know, they're, they're good to go. But no, that's not what they're doing all along. I've been reading this wrong the whole time. It is, it is one that they would use for washing. Maybe they had... All these pots there because they're having a wedding feast. And everybody's coming in and they're all having to wash their hands and as they're coming in for the thing and getting ready for it all. You know, so that's for the Jewish purification. They're being clean. Well, we find washings coming out throughout Scripture a lot here. You wash the outside of the pot. You know, I'm talking about washing the inside. You know, Jesus uses that reference. So the law was to wash and be clean. That was their prescription. But it's dead, still water in a pot. Pagan culture, some of them did that. I was thinking about the Viking culture. It's like you would sit in a circle, and before they got on this journey, they would have this basin of water, and the first guy would go wash his face, blow his nose in it, hawk and spit in it, and then he'd pass it to the next guy. And then he would wash his face and blow it in the side of it. And like, who wants to be the last guy? I know Levi talks about that in mom and dad's house. Sometimes, you know, dad would go through the wash rag. He said, you want to be the first guy in the wash rag, not the last guy, <laughs> after he hit everybody. So uh, the same way, it's like, man, he, this was for... Cleansing, you know, so the Jews are like, no, you keep it, you pour it out. You're not using the same thing, you know, over and over again. But how many of them are there? Six. That's a unique number. What's six stand for in the Bible? Usually it means who? Man, right? It stands for us. Yeah, mankind. One short of seven. We're not complete. We're incomplete. That's why the Antichrist is the ultimate. 666. He's incomplete man. He is wrong. He falls short. He is evil in how he does it. Man is six. Man falls short. Man is not complete. We can't do it. We have six pots of water trying to clean you. They can't do it. They are incomplete. The law cannot satisfy what you need to have your sins removed. Six of them there. And oh, they're made just out of the same thing you and I are, right? Hearts of stone. These are stone water pots. These are special. These are like you. Six, six falling short pots of stone. I have no heart of compassion. The ones who are, every thought of our heart is evil continually. Yeah, so this is representing us. The law shortcoming with us that we can't do it and that we have to wash again and again and again and again and again and again. Dead water. And yet we have the one who is living water standing right there, right? We even got to the woman of the well. It's full of those firkins. That's about nine gallons. That would make this total like 54 gallons of stuff. I was trying to think, but we have the harvest party, and we had the two containers down there, maybe three gallons a piece. I don't, I don't know in there, something like that. And that lasts us all day, and we pour some out at the end of the day. You know, so that's you know, maybe six gallons of getting care of 50, 60 people throughout the day. Man, 54 gallons, that's plenty. <laughs> they got plenty of, plenty of festivities uh, there for the people. And so uh, I think, again, that it's showing that he's going to be over and abundant. He's bringing that joy, and he brings enough to satisfy and give these guys a good reputation. So, okay, so it's verse 7. And Jesus said unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. Jesus could have done it all. He could have been like, okay, I'm going to get some water. I'm going to put it in the pots. I'm going to fill it all up. But he doesn't. He uses servants. He still uses servants. Could God do it all? He could. He could have made it filled with water just standing right there. Water. And then turned to wine. He just made it instantly turned to wine. We don't have him touching it and doing anything. You know, it's just there. And I think a lot of that is one, it shows his power. But two, it lets more in on the blessing, right? These guys, are, I went and got water. I put water in there. I was carrying water to the governor thinking, he's going to have my head. And then the governor drinks it, and he's like, oh, this is the best ever. You know, and so they're like, what? 
They've just gone from desperation to joy. The law does that, right? You ever lied? You ever stolen? You ever disobeyed your parents? You ever failed the Lord and keep Him first? It's like it just kills us, kills us, kills us, kills us. Oh, the joy when we realize that Christ has died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. What joy that is when all of a sudden you cling to Him and you have life. Yeah. Notice who He uses. Servants. He didn't get the governor. Hey, governor, come check this. The least of these. He still uses that, the foolish, right, to confound the wise. Those who are not, to confound those who are. This is the pattern. This is the disciples that he picked. This is the disciples that he picked that's in here, the least of these. So he's letting more people in on it. It's not like it's been a big public declared thing, but oh, it grew. If you were part of this miracle, you know what? You went and told somebody, I put water in there. And it became the best wine I've ever had in my life. Verse 9. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and he knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good until now. Basically, he's like, all of us are cheapskates. <laughs> all of us, we'll give you some good wine at the beginning, and then if people get drunk, I'll water it down. You know, bring in the cheap stuff. We're making this last. You know, it's like dredging her out. He's like, no. You brought out the best. And, and he gets this blessing, a double blessing on his marriage. It's a good marriage. Is Jesus there? He gets a blessing. Now he gets a good reputation. It's not like, oh, remember you're going over to their house. Take your own boy. Now these are the guys, the ones that are known the rest of their life. But that was the best ever. What an amazing night. And then later that they're all talking about, it was a miracle. Jesus had done that. It was water. You were out. And oh, what a blessing. And what a blessing that comes upon them for sharing what Christ has done for them in their marriage and all that. Same thing for us. Man. So yeah, he uses this. It's the start. The start of their marriage starts out with joy. It starts out with blessing. It starts out with praise. It starts out with better. Water's good. Nothing tastes better than water. I had a friend who uh, served in Vietnam. and He got water everywhere we went. And that was one of the first people I was really around that drank water you know, before it was like super cool. And I remember asking, why do you drink water everywhere? You can have Pepsi. You, know, you, you can have, you can have you know, a root beer or something like that. He goes... Vietnam, they gave us this Kool-Aid nasty stuff to try to flavor up the nasty water we had there. And he goes, I swore I would never drink anything but good, pure American water again. I'm like, I can see that. You know? <laughs> and so he made sure he did. He just appreciated it. But man, wine for a party is better than water. I guess I don't drink wine, but they did. It's better. You know, you're a party, you mean this. It's that double blessing of joy and praise. He gets the joy of the wine and the praise of the governor who's overseeing this. And he tells him, this man is not cheap like all of us. He's brought out the good. And he gets all this blessing. He's probably saying, I don't know what I did. But Christ is working and moving through all these things. What a start. It says the disciples believed. Verse 11, the this beginning of miracles did Jesus Christ in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. And his disciples believed on him. The disciples believed. Now the disciples believe. Right? It's like, man, think of the things we did. We talked about Nathaniel. He knew I was sitting under the fig tree while I was sitting under the fig tree. Think about a Bible verse. And he told me the Bible verse that I was thinking about. And he gave me the answer to that. And, and Peter, he changed my name. And we have all these different things. The scriptures fulfilled. And he talks to the others. Man, now they're like, now we've just seen it with our own eyes. He's done it. We've tasted it. This is the best we've ever had. We're going to travel with this guy. 
And he's already told us, oh, there's more coming, you know, the twinkle in his eye, and he's probably the, the biggest laugher at the party and, and doing all these things. It's like, this guy's joy. This guy brings happiness. This guy, this is Messiah, you know, and so they're excited. They're starting on a three-year journey of watching this daily. And John's like, I can tell you all kinds of things. But I want to tell you the first. Why? They believed. Why is it here? Because Jesus is better than the law. He is happier. He is joyous. He will actually fulfill. And you won't have to go back and wash again and again and again in a cold-hearted stone pot. It's incomplete. Jesus has come to complete these things, to fulfill the law. And he's just kind of give us a little nuance. Watch the rest of this. I'm going to fulfill the law everywhere, and I'm so much better than the law. Why is he included here? Because it's the first miracle. And this answers a lot of questions. Have you heard all the rumors of Jesus and his boyhood? You know, there's a lot of different religions that will try to make a big deal about. Joseph was cutting the board, and he cut it too short, and Jesus comes over and pulls it over. <laughs> Thank you, son. And he's got a board that's long enough. You hear that one? There's number they're up making the little doves out of clay, and, and Jesus comes and touches them and makes them alive, and they fly off. Those are legends. This was the first one. The Bible tells me so. <laughs> this was the first of the miracles that he did. And even then, he's like, my time's not yet. Okay. And he does this because he loves his mother. So this is the first miracle. Well, first means something. And the first one's about being filled with joy, being filled with wine, the Spirit. You know, that's how it ties together. Does it relate to us? Yeah. We have that heart of stone. We are empty, needing to be filled, right? The law didn't save us, doesn't fill us. Good works doesn't save us, doesn't fulfill us. You know, being, you know, whatever it is we all try to do just leaves us short, leaves us lost, leaves us grasping. But then Jesus comes, probably with the help of a servant, right? Maybe a mom, maybe an uncle or a cousin, a friend, invites him along to some conversation. You didn't know he was coming. And he comes and then he does something great and does something wonderful. And then he pours into you the water, the washing of the word. Have you lied? Have you stolen? You know, have you broken one of these commandments? You're guilty of all. You became desperate. And then he gave you that joy is unspeakable and full of glory. And he told you that Jesus Christ died in your place on the cross. But on the third day he rose again, manifesting his glory. If you would repent of your sins and trust in him, Jesus Christ would save you and give you a fresh start. You'd be born again. And you did, and you're filled with that new wine, the Holy Spirit. And there's a joy. You remember the joy of the day when you asked Christ to save you? Do you remember how you slept that night? Like the dead, like, ah, oh, peaceful, I don't have to worry about anything. I didn't sleep good the week before, but I did after. My sins had been forgiven. I had a joy unspeakable that was full of glory. I wanted to tell somebody. He's poured into me that. And I, my sadness was turned to joy. The calamity, the, the desperation of what are we going to do, the embarrassment of my life was given new life because he poured into me the Holy Spirit. Filled me with that spirit. It's that wine. You believed. Like the disciples. I believed. And you know what? We're going to believe more as we go through the Gospel of John. He's going to give us more things to believe. They believed and they came to know him. Now they've seen this first miracle and they believed all the more. I believe all the more now because of studying this first miracle that he's done. We are now part of the bride of Christ, right? He was involved in the marriage, our first part of that ceremony, right? The down payment, we're given the earnest of the Holy Spirit, and one day we'll be consummated in heaven. We are called the bride of Christ. And so it starts out with that kind of a wedding, the whole wedding scenario there. And so we kind of have that tied in together with us as well. So we're part of that bride of Christ. So this is our story. And the rest of the Gospel of John here is to encourage us in our belief. And if you don't believe, 
This is all here to make you believe, or to at least give you the evidence that you should believe that Jesus is the Christ. This is one of the first miracles I remember looking at as a, trying to look at it skeptically, knowing how magic tricks work, because there's a lot of magic tricks out there that turn the water into wine. You know, I was just impressed by the text that everything that you'd have to do in the magic trick, Jesus makes sure he avoids. Uh, go get some water, pour it in there. He never touches it. You know, it never goes on. All those things that they could do to be some kind of shenanigans, he's got eyewitnesses showing that he was never there. He never said it. He does it, and he transforms it, and it's like, I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> and I remember going through each one and just looking for those things skeptically, you know, kind of like Penn and Teller have a show, Foolish. You know, they try to fool them because they know the strategy, and you apply it to this, you're like, you can't. It doesn't work. He is the real deal. So if you don't believe... Believe. You can't do it on your own. Realize you need to be filled with the Spirit and you're going to have a joy unspeakable. And so, yeah, we need to invite them. We need to tell them. We, we have feasts to do them. That's another one of the things we can put in our tackle box. You know, invite people over to talk to them and to share the good news of the gospel of Christ. You know, to introduce things to them, to show them who he is and what he's done. And that we can have that new life or just your testimony. Friday night at RU, we were talking about being that new creature, right? You know, it's like... Look who I was and look who I am now. It's like, tell me what has done this. Tell me what has changed my life. I can tell you. I can point it back to the time I was introduced to Jesus Christ. He performed a miracle in my life. He took me from being dead and made me alive. He took me from being lost to being found. He opened the blinded eyes of this sinner and made me see. He could do the same for you. And so, yeah, we need to invite them. And they can have a part of this new birth. And we can grow in faith as we travel onward. And so, I am excited uh, for the rest of this book seeing what John has laid down for us. And so pray for me as I pray to the Lord that he opens my eyes, that we can glean as much as we can, though I know we can't glean at all, uh, but to strengthen our faith and to bring those who don't know him to faith in knowing him.